minorities. I'm Indian American. He's uh, his father is Cuban, and um, but that doesn't make us experts on this topic. That doesn't mean that we know everything there is to say. Um, but we're excited. I mean, we've been learners over the course of the last, I mean, of our lifetimes, but also just over the last years. I feel like we have um, thought more about racial identity and um, how it plays into our lives. So we're just excited to share some of the stuff we've been learning. Yeah, and we also just want to acknowledge that this topic can be really touchy. Uh, I think everybody in this room is coming in from a different place in regards to this topic. I think um, for minorities in this room, uh, this topic has felt hard for various reasons. Uh, and so uh, we just want to acknowledge that there's like a lot of hurt in this topic. And then also, um, there's like those of you in this room that have actually thought a ton about this topic, and that's awesome. Like, so many of you are really passionate about the idea of uh, racial identity, or, or have thought about it a lot. And then there's others of you in this room that, that haven't really spent much time thinking about it um, and really should be considering this idea more and thinking about race more. And so uh, we just wanna acknowledge that, yeah, for any of you, no matter where you're coming in, we, we want um, this to be something that's helpful and to encourage you to think about these things more. So I'm just gonna pray for us and then we'll jump in. God, I thank you so much for who you are and the fact that you created race, that um, every human being is created in your image and so, uh, race and ethnicity is such a God-glorifying thing. So I just pray that as we think about that and talk about that today and talk about a lot of hard things and a lot of hopeful things, I pray that, um, yeah, we would be encouraged and that we would um, see more of you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so there might be some of you that, I mean, with any project talk, there's a temptation to check out. And we just want to explain why we think this is important. Um, We'll, we'll flesh this out throughout the talk, but we think this is a really biblical issue. This isn't um, primarily a political issue in our day and age. This is uh, something that is really woven throughout the, the core of scripture, and we want you guys to be convinced of that. Um, so we'll, we'll be defending that idea. Um, so before we talk about uh, where our country's at now even, or where we want to head, uh, we want to talk about the past. Um, so. Our country has a really sad history of race. Um, and uh, even from its, I mean, what happened July 4th, 1776? Any, anyone know what happened then? Declaration of Independence. So even from our first Independence Day, when this nation was born, there was uh, strife over race. Um, the, I mean, the, the country was founded on with, with slave labor, with African-American slave labor. And here's a quote from Frederick Douglass, um, uh, who commented, reflecting on Independence Day about 100 years later. He says this, your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. The 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. So this was, this was his comment after he was asked to speak um, to a white audience about Independence Day and just felt the burden of my people are in slavery, how can you how can you call me to meaningfully share on Independence Day when my people are not independent in the slightest? Yeah, and yeah, just 
so if you guys are taking notes, an ugly pass is our first point, just in case you guys didn't get that. Um, but yeah, like Nirmal said, we're just kind of going to walk through a little bit of um, U.S. history in regards to race. And so uh, he talked about uh, the Declaration of Independence uh, and just how, ironically, uh, a lot of people in our country were not free. Uh, but then in the 1800s and the 1860s, the Emancipation Proclamation happened where uh, four million slaves were declared free by Abraham Lincoln. Um, and yet, although that they were declared free, um, there was a lot of uh, lynching that happened uh, after that. So um, white supremacists lynched thousands of African Americans, uh, accusing them of, of crimes that many of them had never committed. Uh, and so although... Uh, our president was saying you are free um, the reality of that wasn't felt by, by many African Americans and, and lynching which is a really gruesome way of killing happened up and through the 1960s uh, and just uh, to make this even a little closer to home uh, in Duluth, Minnesota uh, which was never even a, a slave state uh, in 1920 uh, three African American men were accused of raping a woman but there was no evidence that it actually happened and so they were actually lynched for that uh, and they were just passing through. They were, like, uh, helping with a circus, and so they were killed that same day. And so even Minnesota has a really ugly history in regards to race. Uh, and not only did lynching happen to African Americans, it also happened to Mexican Americans. Um, that was actually really long overlooked, but there were th hundreds of Mexican Americans that were lynched in the Southwest. Um, they were Their freedom was taken from them, and uh, the, the Southwest was originally part of Mexico, and so... Um, the U.S. just kind of declared that to be their territory. And so many um, Mexican-Americans were lynched in the Southwest. Uh, and an another uh, way that uh, racism has played out in our country in the past is that uh, Native Americans were forced to go to boarding schools. So uh, just a little description on uh, what boarding schools looked like for Native Americans. Uh, they were uh, essentially immersed into European-American culture. So uh, Native Americans were forced to change their appearance through uh, cutting their hair. They were forbidden to speak their native languages. Uh, their traditional Native American names were replaced by European-American names um, to civilize and to, to Christianize them. The, the really sad thing is that, um, that a lot of that was done in the name of Christianity. Uh, and the experience of these schools were really harsh. Um, young ch children were forced to be separated from their families uh, in numerous ways. Yeah, they were just completely encouraged to abandon their native cultures. Uh, and, and even just a lot of investigation later on has revealed numerous cases of rape, um, physical abuse, mental abuse. Uh, and so that's, that, that, that's in our own country, uh, if you weren't aware of that. Uh, and then jumping a little farther forward into the 1900s, uh, in the 1940s, over 100,000 Japanese people were forced, in America, were forced to relocate to interior camps following the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so <laughs> essentially we had concentration camps in our own country, and over 60% of the people uh, that were forced to go to these camps were American citizens. And so um, just for the sole fact of being Japanese, they were associated with these terrorists, and uh, it was just really unfair. Um, and then moving a little farther forward to some more hopeful things and good things is uh, the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s uh, essentially banned discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Uh, it ended unequal application of voter registration requirements, um, prohibited racial segregation in schools and the workplace.
the voting the Voting Rights Act of 1965 restored and protected voting rights for minorities, uh, and the Immigration and Nationality Services Act of 1965 removed racial and national barriers to immigration, uh, and it allowed immigration for people to come to the U.S. other than just from Europe. And then also the Fair Housing Act of 1968 banned discrimination in the sale or rental of housing. Uh, and Afri African Americans were able to re-enter politics in the South. So that's kind of a really quick summary, but uh, <laughs> this is just to help you guys be aware of what's happened. I mean, this is 50 years ago, not that long ago, that uh, African Americans were not given equal rights. But to make it uh, maybe a little bit more personal, um, how many of you guys have seen the movie Hidden Figures? Or maybe, maybe if you haven't seen it, you're familiar with it. But if you're not familiar with it, it's essentially about um, three African-American women uh, who were a huge part in sending uh, our astronauts to the moon. And for a long time, their story was never told. So we're just going to show you a clip from this movie um, and just a scene uh, from the movie. Where the hell have you been? Everywhere I'm not where I need you to be. It's not my imagination. Now, where the hell do you go every day? To the bathroom. <coughs> to the bathroom. To the damn bathroom. For 40 minutes a day? What are you doing now? We're T minus zero here. I put a lot of faith in you. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you there here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog day and night living off a coffee from a pot none of you want to touch so excuse me if I have to go to the restroom a few times a day So, and, and these race dynamics 
play themselves out in the New Testament. We see Jewish Christians showing hostility to Gentile Christians, as we've seen in Ephesians, believing themselves to be superior. So anywhere you look in Scripture, you see race as a very salient issue. Yeah, and so this leads into our next point, that not only uh, is there an ugly past to racism, but it's a present problem. Uh, segregation is still occurring in the United States and across the world, but we're specifically talking about the U.S. And I don't think this should come as that much of a surprise uh, because our country is so divided. I, I think about uh, the presidential election of last year uh, and how that displays a major rift in our country. And we just want to walk through a couple of statistics. Um, so, I mean, just overall, only 46% of the popular vote went to Donald Trump, 48% went to Hillary Clinton. Uh, and so, I mean, Donald Trump won by the electoral votes. And I just want to make a, a little comment here. I'm not, neither of us are making a comment on who we voted for or whether we're in favor or against Donald Trump, but I just want to illustrate how divided our country is in regards to the election. Um, so 37% of white people voted for Hillary Clinton uh, and 57% of white people voted for Donald Trump. Uh, 74%, however, of non-white people voted for Hillary Clinton and 21% voted for Donald Trump. And so I think if you're a majority culture uh, person in this room, uh, you, I, I want you to really think about how the election might have affected uh, someone who is of a minority culture. Um, and, I, and I also want to just make a comment on the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, it's a movement I think most of you, or if not all of you, are familiar with. Uh, and it began in 2013 after the shooting of Trayvon Martin uh, and George Zimmerman, the officer who shot him, uh, he, he was acquitted of that. Uh, and so as I say Black Lives Matter, I think there's probably a lot of different responses in this room. Um, so some of you might hear that and feel frustrated and might think, might use the response, all lives matter. And then I think there are some of you in this room that are completely in favor of the Black Lives Movement and everything that it stands for. And I think as Christians, we need to be really careful to examine how we respond to this movement. Um, first of all, our hearts sh should break for lives like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown and Ferguson, Eric Garner, Philando Castile. Um, just uh, a little over a week ago on June 16th, um, Geronimo Yanez was acquitted for murder. And this happened in Minnesota last summer, if you guys are familiar with that. It, the video that was posted online of, of this man being shot. And so I just want to read just a few thoughts from his mom after, this is on June 16th after Geronimo was acquitted. She says, my son loved this city. This is talking about where, we're, where, where we come from. My son loved this city, and this city killed my son. Um, and she says, this, the system in this country continues to fail black people and will continue to fail us. And so uh, I think our response should be that black lives do matter. And I think that when we say things like all lives matter, I think it really diminishes from the oppression that black people have felt. Uh, while on the other end of the spectrum, I think there's a lot of things maybe about the movement uh, that, that I personally don't agree with. But the underlying matter that black lives matter is extremely significant. And I would use the hashtag Black Lives Matter over All Lives Matter any day. Uh, and, I, and I would just encourage you, if, if you disagree with me, I think I would encourage you to go talk to a black person about how they feel about you using the hashtag All Lives Matter because it's a really, <laughs> it just feels like it really diminishes the issue. And so I've, and I've, the numerous black people I've talked to have felt that way. So I would just encourage you, if you disagree with me, just to talk to a black person about that. Um, next. Uh, I think we see a lot of segregation regarding the Somali community, uh, specifically in Minnesota. I mean, I see this in St. Cloud, where the majority of Somalians live in one neighborhood. Uh, most people, when they 
see it a driving issue, make a comment, oh, they must be Somalian. This is numerous comments I've heard. Um, I mean, a lot of people make assumptions about them being terrorists. And so I think there's just a lot of really ugly things that are maybe not said directly to them, but are in underlying attitudes. And maybe some of you in this room have felt negative things towards Somalians. Um, and uh, not only, uh, yeah, is that an issue in Minnesota, but I mean, many major United States, cities in the United States are extremely segregated racially. I mean, like the, the city of Detroit, uh, if you guys are familiar with, I mean, Eminem's song, Eight Mile, it's about this street, this road in Detroit that is extremely divided racially. Like south of Eight Mile is like over 90% black and ab above Eight Mile is like over 90% white. And so I think, you know, we might think, oh, you know, we're not segregated as a country anymore. But if you actually look at the statistics, there's a lot of parts of our country that are very segregated. Um, and even just uh, a few years ago, um, not even just regarding uh, black lives, but just other races and, and discrimination, I mean, in a survey, one in 10 people admitted to prejudice against Hispanics. And this is like less than 10 years ago, uh, in 2007, a survey was taken. And one in four people admitted to prejudice against Arab Americans. So it's just really sad. Prejudice, just mean, making assumptions and thinking poor things about someone just because of their race. Uh, and even in South Carolina, where we're at right now, interracial marriage was illegal until 1998. I don't know if you guys knew that. We, we learned that just recently. But that's crazy. That not even 20 years ago, this interracial marriage was illegal. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to illustrate that segregation is still occurring. And, I mean, there's also a lot of progress that has been made. I mean, it's awesome that we had an African-American president. And I'm also not making a comment of how necessarily I felt about Obama and all his policies. But the fact that we had an African-American president says a lot. But we still have a lot of way to go. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would love to come up here in front of all you guys and say this was like this is a, a secular issue but in the church we've really got it figured out but I just really don't believe that's the case so um, if we so I'm going to talk about the percentage of multi-ethnic churches in America with the definition of multi-ethnic being um, a church in which more than 20% of the congregation um, is a different ethnicity than the other 80% so a church that was um, 79% black, 21% white would be multi-ethnic. Um, so that's not even like a huge, hugely diverse, that's like just, you know, a significant portion, but not even like 50-50 or anything like that, just more than 20%. And if that's our definition of multi-ethnic, only 2.5 churches, 2.5% of churches in America would fit that description. So 97.5% of churches in our country are um, hugely dominated by one ethnic group, regardless of what that is. Um, Lecrae has a song called Dirty Water, um, and uh, in that song he says, the most segregated time of day is Sunday service. And that's something that we see statistically to be true, that the most segregated time in our country is when people go to church, which is really sad and just goes to show that we um, have, really, have really failed in this area. Um, so next I've got uh, a clip from Remember the Titans that I wanna show you guys real quick. Brennan, can you cue that up? Quick. Thanks, man.
What are you doing at Burke? We're going to play basketball and do this. And we're going to come back here for dinner. Harry, your father is still alive. Ma, just give him a chance. Just get to know him. Listen to him for two seconds. I don't want to get to know him. You are coming to church with your mother. That's good. Um, but I just, uh, when I was watching the movie, that clip really stuck out to me because here we have, um, uh, the, the, the son, the character, he, wanted, he was just going to go play basketball with his friend who's African-American, and his mother was so disdainful of even the idea that she'd be spending time with someone from a different ethnicity. And the thing that really stood out to me is that she says, you're coming to church with your mother. So this movie made in the 2000s, it connected this idea of racism and bigotry with uh, religious fervor. So like in the minds of modern people, modern secular people, uh, they're picking up on the most segregated time of day of Sunday service. They're picking up on the fact that churches don't do diversity well. Um, and uh, so that's like, that's our current situation. That's, that's a present problem that we have. And what we want to talk about is a hope for, what, what hope do we have for reversing? Yeah, which leads into our last point, which is that there is a hopeful future. Uh, and uh, we believe that the one solution to, to the issues of racism in, in our country and in all of history, there's one solution, and that's, that's the gospel. And so we're going to talk through one solution, one people, and one vision. So I just want to start with the solution about the gospel. Uh, and first of all, yeah, the gospel shows us that no race is superior to another, that we're all equal in God's image. Uh, and I, I believe the gospel really defends ethnic dignity. Uh, numerous times the Israelites in Egypt uh, were stripped of their, of their dignity. They were forced into slavery. And yet God continued to restore them, continued to restore their ethnic uh, dignity. Uh, and I also want to talk a little bit about the contextualization principle, which might sound like kind of a big word. But I kind of want to explain that by reading a quote. Um, this is from an article in Desiring God. It says, on the one hand, it is of the essence of the gospel that God accepts us as we are on the ground of Christ's work alone, not on the ground of what we have become or are trying to become. But if he accepts us as we are, that implies that he does not take us as isolated self-governing units because we're not. We are conditioned by a particular time and place, by our family and group and society, by culture, in fact. In Christ, God accepts us together with our group relations, with that cultural conditioning that makes us feel at home in one part of human society and less at home in another. And so I believe ultimately what that quote is saying is that the gospel gives us freedom to live as a Christian and yet embrace the culture that we've grown up with, embrace the culture that we've been given. Uh, I think a lot of times we, we view uh, our culture and Christian culture as very different, but I think the gospel is really the only religion the only, I mean, Tim Keller has a book called Making Sense of God, and one of the points he makes is that the gospel is the only religion in the world that gives us the freedom to really embrace our culture in the right way. And so, yeah, we believe the gospel really defends ethnic dignity. And I just want to read another quote by Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King. Actually, first I have a verse I want to read from Genesis 1:27, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the quote that Martin Luther King Jr. has is, is off of that idea that we're all created in God's image. And it says, God's image in us gives every person a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him a dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard. 
precisely because every man is made in the image of God. And so what I, what I love about the civil rights movement and specifically Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s hope is that it's all founded in, in, in the Bible and biblically that we're all created in the image of God. There's really no other ground to, to defend ethnic dignity as well as uh, Christianity. And uh, I just want to share with you guys a little bit of just things that I've been walking through. Um, so, I mean, a lot of you know this from like other talks I've given, or I think even my talk on identity, I mentioned this, but um, so my parents are divorced. Um, my dad's from Cuba, uh, and my mom is, is white. Uh, but my whole life, I grew up with just my mom, and uh, I really don't have a relationship with my dad. And so most of my life, I, identi- I identified way more with uh, ultimately my mom, and ultimately way more with like American white culture. Uh, and I, I felt a lot of shame over the fact that I was Cuban. I, I, even my name, it's actually Alberto, uh, but I think uh, in like junior high, people started calling me Berto, which I'm like totally fine with. I'm not saying you guys can't call me Berto, but it's just, I think part of the, the reason that I was like more okay with that than being called Alberto is it just sounded a little less Hispanic. Um, and I think even the idea, like, because my dad was Cuban, I didn't want to identify as Cuban. Because my dad spoke Spanish, I did not want to learn Spanish. Uh, and so there was just a lot of things that gave me a lot of shame over where I was coming from ethnically. And I think really since becoming a believer, and especially, especially in the last four years, I've had the privilege of, of living in South America uh, as a missionary and getting to really be immersed uh, with people that were Hispanic. And I think I just really felt alive and felt really a connection that I've never, I had never really experienced before with that part of my identity. And, and now I like love speaking Spanish. Alexis and I try to speak Spanish a lot because we don't want to get rusty. And I think that's just really fun that we can communicate in that way. And, um, and I think it's just been sweet to see how uh, the gospel has been really starting to redeem that. But yeah, I think this is something that I've really struggled with in my life. Um, so the one solution is the gospel. It just, it defends ethnic dignity. I'm going to talk about how the gospel destroys ethnic pride. Um, and in order to understand this, I think I need to draw a distinction between pride and dignity. So dignity is saying my ethnicity, my um, racial background is a good thing that God's given me, and I want to appreciate it. Ethnic pride, I think, is when superiority starts to creep into that. So not just my ethnicity is valuable, but my ethnicity is better than someone else's. So I have a couple uh, scripture verses to explain this idea. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7, it says, uh, For you are a people holy to the Lord. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. So, Basically, he's, what the Lord is saying to the people of Israel is like, there's nothing in and of yourself that makes you special that caused me to choose you. You are um, equal with other people groups of the earth, but I chose to set my love on you. Um, but what we see is that that's not the mentality that the people of Israel adopted throughout the course of the Bible. So Galatians 2, verses 11 and 13 illustrate this. Before I go to this passage, I'll give a little bit of a backstory. So the characters that we'll see in Galatians 2 are um, Peter, the Gentile Christians, the Jewish Christians, and Paul. So Peter is associating with the Gentile Christians um, before the Jewish Christians come. 
But the Jewish Christians come and they they have an attitude of superiority towards the Gentile Christians. Um, and we've been studying this in Ephesians, this should be familiar. But they, they have an attitude of superiority so that they don't even want to associate themselves with the Gentiles. They think that they're better. And Paul, so, so when the Jewish Christians come, Peter leaves the Gentile Christians in order to look good, and then Paul comes in and sets the whole thing straight. So we see, we see this in the passage. But when Cephas and Peter I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So, like, this was such a, a deep issue in the, um, in the Christian community between Jews and Gentiles that even these heroes and saints like Barnabas and Peter fell into this, uh, fell into this racial divide. And um, they began to believe that their ethnicity was uh, superior to the Gentiles, and that's what caused this rift. Um, and you might be sit, like in your seat thinking, I, um, well, I don't think I'm superior to anyone else. I don't think anyone in this room would say I'm, I'm of the superior race. But I think the way that this mentality can subtly influence us is when we begin to make claims of, 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 of other people's ignorance, right? So, so maybe someone from a minority culture could say to someone from the majority culture, like that person is so ignorant, they don't, they're so backwards, they don't think through things. Um, without really fully understanding where that person's coming from, without really hearing that person's heart. And on the flip side, I think someone from the majority culture could look at someone from minority culture and say, that person is uh, making a big deal out of nothing. Racism has, is in the past, it's not a big deal anymore. And I think both of these mentalities are assuming, like, I have the corner on understanding what's true about the world, and this other person is misunderstanding. Uh, what's what's ultimately true, and I just think that 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 comes from pride. That there's no other word out than pride. That's that's not um, humility. That's not assuming that everybody has equal rational facilities to understand um, what what's true of the world. Yeah, and uh, so we've been talking about the solution being the gospel, and we believe that the the gospel leads to one people. Uh, we're going to look at Ephesians 2, uh, 11 to 19, uh, which is a passage that we've been reading even just in the last week. And so I just want to walk through this passage, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, and if you guys want to like open up your Bibles to this, that might be helpful. Um, so it will be all up in it. And, it's, and there's not a slide to walk through. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, Ephesians 2, 11 to 19. says, Therefore remember that one, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
I think this is just a really sweet verse that uh, talks about racial tension and racial harmony. Uh, and I, I just want to make a few observations. So uh, we see in verses 11 and 12 this idea that uh, we were all outsiders. So that, and this verse is really speaking to all of us because we're, I, th- I don't know that anybody in here is Jewish. So we're all considered Gentiles. Uh, and so we were all outsiders. I mean, the, the New Living Translation words it that way. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And so I think having an understanding that we were all outsiders should give, should give us an, a, a degree of humility and understanding of each other that not, none of us was close. Um, and even uh, the idea in verse 17, the far off and those who are near, I mean, it's kind of fleshed out earlier in Ephesians 2 when it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins and whom, among whom we all once walked. And so the, the reality is even those who maybe were considered near were still far off because every single one of us was dead in our sin uh, and running the other way. Like if you think about the bridge diagram, we were all separated from God running the other direction and God had to intervene to save us. And so all of us were excluded. And in verse 13 says, we were brought near by his blood. Uh, and that, that idea that Christ shed his blood for us means that we're not only being reconciled to Christ, but we're reconciled to each other. Um, yeah, so we were brought near by his blood. Um, the next observation we made is if you look at verse 14, just the idea that hostility exists pre-Christ. So um, he has broken down and fleshed the dividing wall of hostility. And um, this isn't like, uh, you know, two, uh, two, two groups of people that were good friends, but they just kind of agreed to disagree or they did, there's one issue that sort of separated them a little bit. No, these are, this was hostility. These are warring factions. That's like kind of the image you get of what was going on between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians here. And I just think that uh, grasping that, grasping that this was hostility, and then realizing that in our day and age, there's um, there's a, there's a lot of that still going on. There's hostility and like deep, significant differences between a lot of different ethnic groups. I think is um, it is important to acknowledge that this is like our our condition pre Christ. But we see that the hostility is killed by Christ. So um, verse fourteen says, "He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh." The dividing wall of hostility. So, through Christ, through both of us, um, or, or or through every group um, being uh, coming coming before God, kneeling at the foot of the cross, realizing that I'm a sinner, same as you. Every one of us is dead in our sins before God, but being reconciled to God, all of us at the same time um, kills the hostility, creates the new man, which is my last. When hostility dies, we get unity. So, um, just the idea uh, that like we have a lot of oneness language. So, verse fifteen, um, that he might create himself one new man. Verse sixteen, reconcile us both to God in one body. Verse eighteen, we have access in one spirit. Um, and then even in verse nineteen, we have these images of uh, fellow citizens, <coughs> the saints, members of the household of God, both singular ideas and. That's just what you get when the hostility dies. You get unity. Um, there's an image of, uh, there's a couple different images at play here. There's um, the temple of God is one image that uh, we see in, in Ephesians 2. And also, just the, throughout Ephesians, we have this idea of the family of God. Um, we, in chapter 1, we saw that we were adopted into God's family. And that's something that's true of every ethnic group that believes. 
Um, and another example that Berto's going to share a little bit about is the new spiritual race. But all of these are the unity that we receive when we um, come to Christ. Yeah, so we're going to look at a passage. It's from 1 Peter 2.9. Uh, I just want to read this. So, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I think uh, right away we see this idea that it's a chosen race. So um, no longer is our primary identity in the race that we've been given or born with, but our, our new primary identity is in Christ, and it's in being a chosen race, one that's given to us. Um, and this new spiritual race is one that's never existed before. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a really powerful way that Paul or Peter is addressing uh, the people of God being a chosen race. Um, and yeah, like this whole talk, we've been talking about the importance of racial uh, dignity and ethnicity. But uh, I mean, all throughout the last few weeks, we've been talking about um, the idea of identity in Christ. And we just want you guys to, to understand that we, we believe that the, the most important part of our identity as a believer is the fact that we are in Christ. So, All right, so if our hopeful future is dependent on this one solution in which we're made into one people, um, how can we move forward with one vision? Um, so the vision that we want to have is a biblical vision. So this is Revelation 5, 9, and 10. This is an image of what the new heavens will be like. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we see here that diversity is not just something that's a temporary earthly concept that when we get to heaven, we'll all be you know blue or green or whatever, and, and this, all this will be gone. That's not the image we get. We get every tribe, language, people, and nation preserved in heaven in perfect unity, praising Jesus together at the throne of God. So, and this is just such a beautiful image, and it's what we want, what we want on earth now. We want heaven on earth, and because of that, we we want to move forward with this vision of this is this is what we want to see happen, and we have a few practical ideas on what that will look like. Yeah, and uh, so up until this point, uh, I don't know where you guys are standing and rela- relating to this talk. I mean, some of you might be checked out. You might be thinking this doesn't really apply to me. Like, I don't really think. Uh, that much about these things, or I'm not a minority, or I'm not, you know, I don't think of myself as superior. But I guess I just really encourage you guys to to really think about these applications, because these are very specific to our ministry uh, and ways that we want to help move forward. And we'll try to fly. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, we want to, we, we, our campus outreach, our ministry really needs to work hard to create a family environment, one that welcomes minorities. Uh, and I, when I think about a family, I don't think about people that just tolerate each other. I don't think about just politeness and just treating each other nicely. Uh, but because racism isn't just solved by niceness, we have to actually like love each other and we actually have to treat each other unconditionally. Um, and so a family is messy and it's not always easy, but if we're really going to be in each other's lives and, and we're, we're, and we're different from each other, it's going to, it's going to be. Uh, needed to not just tolerate but actually relate with each other. Um, next is we need to put on compassion. So Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience. Uh, so off of that, it's just the whole perspective of, of understanding where another person's coming from has to be back to the idea of, of understanding how much compassion and mercy we've been shown in the gospel, that we were so undeserving and yet God chose to love us. And so we want to extend the same sort of compassion to other people. And uh, just like a little side note is, I would just encourage you guys to be really aware uh, and careful of isolating language or joking um, because uh, it's not fun to uh, be a minority and and when someone makes a comment that they think is okay that's a majority person, uh, it can just feel really isolating. So and Nermal wants to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, I mean just from my personal experience, I feel like one of the ways that race played most significantly in my life is I felt like a lot of people, I, I have a group of mostly white friends and they all felt the freedom and comfort to make jokes about um, my my skin and my ethnicity and my family, and um, I didn't think twice because they were my friends, right? Like they're people I cared about. I knew they cared about me. But I think what that subtly communicated is um, that it's not okay for me to take my race seriously. Like it wouldn't have been okay for me to take offense at their comments, um, and. So I just think that it, it made me think like my race is a joke. Like if everyone's making a joke, my race, my race is a joke. And um, I just think that since then, it's it's taken a lot of like rewiring my brain almost to start taking being Indian seriously. Um, so I just think that's that's just a way that I think we can put on compassionate hearts towards one another. How can we a, a, avoid speaking in a way that makes race feel like more like a joke than a, than a reality? Um, so the next point that we had and how do we create a family environment is to educate. Um, so I just think that if we all take the mentality of a learner, like I want to learn the position and the experience of people different than me, that's what's going to help us the most. And I think there's a couple ways we can do this. One of one is just honestly just reading. Like there's so many resources. There's um, Piper has a book called Bloodlines. It's really good. Um, uh, and uh, there's like a lot of there's a lot of Christian resources and articles and things that you can read to understand um, more about um, people different than you. And I would say the other way to learn is just to ask the people around you. I mean, you have friends that are minorities. Um, minorities, you have obviously friends that are majority culture. Just ask ask people about their experience and understand um, in a loving way, in a way that's not just, oh, you're you know, X ethnicity, therefore I'm going to ask you this question even though I've never met, talked to you in my life about anything else. Like that would be insensitive. But someone who's really a friend, someone that you care about, ask, start asking them about what their experience has been like. Um, and then the other point that I had is bear with one another. This comes from Colossians 3. Um, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. So before um, there can be forgiveness, there has to be, um, it has to be talked about, first of all. Like we need to, um, I think this this goes to a lot of minorities. This goes to me. Like I feel like I am slow to actually bring things up, and I think it's really helpful to bring things up if there's a hurtful comment made or something like that. Um, and uh, that we need to be a, a a group that's okay with that happening, but also a group that's forgiving when that happens. And um, I mean, I uh, like as the Lord has forgiven you. Like the Lord has forgiven me of um, so much racism in my life. Like I'm a recovering racist. I like. Um, there's, there were, there was like a, like, I remember a Somali kid growing up in elementary school that I treated poorly because I wanted to, he, his parent, he didn't speak English as well, and I wanted to separate myself from him so that I felt like I fit in more, and I say that to my shame, like, that's, uh, horrific that I did that, but that's, that was my experience as a little kid, and, um, 
like I there's like similar stories in like middle school for me that I um, there's a an Indian kid of Muslim faith and I insulted him to his face in front of everyone and shamed him when he was fasting for Ramadan and that's just like this I just want to cry like, talking about that like I I've sinned so deeply in this area like and I need the Lord's forgiveness and how can I not forgive someone who who spoke a, a harsh word against me so that's just I think that's the mentality we need to adopt like just come together at the foot of the cross and ask for forgiveness um and then uh, next we just want to talk about uh valuing culture so if, if you're a minority here uh we just want to really want to encourage you to value the culture that you've grown up in uh, and just a couple of ways that i've even just like seen this play out a project is i mean seeker being from nepal has made some of the best food that i've ever experienced at project like real real food i feel like typically i mean i make like sandwiches or like heat up my mac and cheese but seeker is like making these all-out amazing dishes and so maybe not, not everybody at project go ask him to make you food but uh honestly he'd probably say yes but uh just be uh even in this in at this project there are people that have a culture that we can learn about i mean i even i, I love the fact that alexis's team name is la familia because not only is it just in spanish but the fact that um the hispanic culture is so centered around family and so centered on togetherness which is a very like beautiful way of, of the of picturing the people of god and that just using that as like a team name is really cool and if you're a majority culture student, you also have a culture that you come from. You also have an ethnic background that I think would be really sweet if you discovered more of and thought, oh, where am I coming from? Uh, what is the culture that I've grown up in and the culture that my family has come from? And for you to, to be able to draw out your own culture, but also be a learner like Normal's been talking about of other people's cultures. Uh, and just one other thought on that uh, is just don't, don't expect people to assimilate so regarding campus outreach in particular i think we there is kind of a culture in campus outreach uh and i just would say we have to be careful if if the culture that we're a part of or the culture that we're portraying is really christian culture or, or if it's co culture because i think with co culture i don't think a minority m might feel comfortable with co culture but with christian culture anybody is welcome so there's a distinction i think with just and hopefully a lot of things about CO culture are Christian culture, but there could just be things in our ministry that we have to be aware of that might not be very welcoming. Um, and then the uh, final thing is, um, I mean, we, we are a huge evangelistic ministry, and I just think the practical is reach minority students. Um, find, uh, I mean, find students of all ethnicities on uh, your campuses, but I think specifically having a vision for, if I sh share my faith with this person and they come to Christ, like, that's going to be a unique way um, that the that the kingdom of God is imaged in our community. Um, and just to think like that. And for minority students in the room, you have a unique opportunity to witness to um, other minority students. There's just a, uh, a way that that, that is, um, that there's like a, there's a bonding point there of, um, you know, whatever it would be, whether it's, I had to figure out like my my family being a lot different than the families I grew up with or whatever it would be there's a bonding point that minorities have with one another so I'd encourage you all to think through how that can be leveraged for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of reaching more minorities um so that's all we had uh I mean we we talked about racism the ugly past how it's still a present issue today but we really believe that the gospel is the hope that we have to um move forward in unity so that the Church of God and Campus Irish Minneapolis, hopefully, would be an image that people would see, wow, um, they really get along. So.
Um, that's all we had. Uh, I don't